Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. I am actually sitting in uh, the Boulderado in Boulder, Colorado, a beautiful historical um, hotel smack in the city of, of Boulder with a dear friend of mine, Harish, mm. a.k.a. Chris Wallace. And uh, it's a really fortuitous opportunity for me because, uh, because Chris is literally about to leave on a plane tomorrow um, uh, for Portugal. So I tackled him on his way to the airport <laughs> and he's going to spend some time talking to me about these extraordinary books that he's put out over the last couple of years. But um, usually what I do here, do you prefer Harish or Chris? Does it matter at this point? Um, Harish, yeah, a little bit. Awesome. So usually what I do, Harish, is I usually do a formal kind of introduction, but since I'm here live with you, give us a little bit about, um, tell us a little bit about your background, both academically and spiritually, because one of the things that is so compelling about your work is this really rare blend of scholar yogi. Um, and that to me just has so much traction these days because there's no shortage of so-called experts in the academy. But uh -huh. for people who really walk the talk, or in this case, sit the talk, uh -huh. it's hard to come across uh, real yogic practitioners, scholars like you. So give us a little sense of, of both your academic background, which is really impressive, and also your uh, kind of practice background and how you got so deeply embedded uh -huh. in the Shaiva traditions. Yeah, well, and I'll preface it by saying, you know, and I'm sure you can relate to this to some extent, that it's a little bit odd to talk about one's autobiography when one no longer identifies with that, you know, persona, that construct, that, you know, it's like the the self, uh, as, as ordinarily discussed anyway, is seen as, as a social, con a social psychological construct, you know, that then, that then sort of destabilizes through practice and, and even dissolves, you know. So it's like in relating, quote-unquote, my background, I feel, you know, it's it's a little bit, it's almost like a little bit of imposter syndrome in the sense that I, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm talking about this guy who w existed in the past, but, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's all, it's all, it's all true as, as far as, uh, you know, as far as it goes, but it's, yeah, it's a weird yeah. kind of sensation. Um, but anyway, yeah, so let's see. I, I first, I met my root guru when I was 16 and received a, a, a kind of initiation from her and a transmission for sure. Um, but I, I say kind of an initiation because there's no formal ritual or anything. But um, an, an initiatory transmission, one might say. And then, um, you know, kind of, I, I got into all kinds of stuff. Like the, there was this awakening that happened at age 16, which in the Hindu tradition anyway, that's actually the traditional age to have an awakening if you are yoga brashta, meaning if you are picking up from where you left off in the previous lifetime, then you usually have your awakening at, yeah, like 15, 16 years old. And... Um, so then I, you know, I got into meditation, but I got into everything. I got into psychedelic drugs and, you know, just exploring consciousness, you know, while, while in high school, which meant I almost didn't finish high school. I almost flunked out of high school and I actually finished it a little bit later at community college, you know, um, because I was just, you know, I was just lost interest in the, in the school things. And, you know, it was, it was a good school, but not a great school. And so... 
then, um, you know, I was after after high school. I didn't want to go to university. That was just like academics, you know. Or I, I also had a kind of hippie ethos where I thought the universities are all controlled by the man. <laughs> you know, that's not where I want to be. But so I, I kind of I did the theater and I traveled uh, the world. You know, I saved up and would travel all over Europe and and in, went to India for the first time, which I found very frightening, <laughs> you know, overwhelming as people do. Um, now it's not at all, of course. But um, then I I asked myself, it was in Paris at the time, and I asked myself, well, what would I do if I could do anything? You know. This is the sort of advice I gave to my friends. So I thought, well, I'll try it on myself. I thought, well, I would just, um, you know, study Indian philosophy and or, or talk about it, read about it, practice it. And then I was like, oh well, I, I you know, I should, uh, I should act on that then. So then I I lived in my guru's ashram for for a couple years. No, was this in India? No, this is it. Her 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 ashram in New York. She has one in India where I visited. But this was in um, the New York, upstate New York ashram. And then I met there, at the ashram, I met uh, these scholar practitioners. And I didn't really know that there were scholar practitioners as a, as a category of human. But um, so these guys, like Paul Muller and, and Bill Mahoney and Douglas Brooks, and they were just seemed like wonderful people. And they were deeply studied and deeply practiced individuals, you know. So I was like, oh, wait a second, you know, this is possible. And, you know, the cur curriculum at the ashram didn't go that deep. So I, you know, didn't have more to learn there. I mean, of course, one can always practice more. But, you know, I didn't have more to learn per, per se there. So I, I felt called to to go to university at the, with this very different kind of attitude than most people go to university in this country. Where I was, I'm just here for Indian philosophy, for Indology, you know, and I'm going to do everything I can. And, you know, because Brooks and Muller were both at the same university, you could you could have a full schedule of classes in, in just Asian religi religious yeah. traditions there. But I also did other stuff like, um, uh, you know, early Christianity, you know, Kabbalah, like just comparative religion, yeah, comparative religion thing, and and then um, then I then I took a class with Paul Muller called Hindu Tantric Yoga, and this was mind blowing. I mean, I had heard of and I'd read some Kashmir Shaivism, and I was always that was what it was known as back then, and I was always drawn to Kashmir Shaivism or the philosophy of the Shaiva masters of Kashmir. And then I took the Hindu Tantric Yoga class, this is in 2000, and I was blown away, and I read this article by Alexis Sanderson um, called Purity and Power, and it's an amazing piece of work. It's actually his first major academic article, and it's like <laughs> unbelievably mind-blowing. And uh, so then I was like, I've got to go to Oxford. I just have to study with the best, you know? So then, so then, uh, but then to go to Oxford, you needed to have good Sanskrit. So I went to Berkeley for two years, oh. did a master's in Sanskrit, got my language skills, you know, up to par. Went to Oxford, got much better Sanskrit there, and did a did a master's in philosophy with uh, yeah, Alexis Sanderson, who's the he's the guy. He's the number one yeah. scholar of tantric studies in the world. Um, 
you know, he's even he's he's the only person alive that we know of who's read all the scriptural material of both Shaivism and Buddhism and Jainism. Uh, he's just literally read everything in in manuscript form. So kind of an Aristotle of the Sanskrit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, he's a, he's ama- amazingly fluent. He can just read Sanskrit, you know, at the speed that you would read the newspaper. Yeah. So, uh, so I got to do two years with him. He's very tough. He's he's challenging. He's he's brilliant. You know. Um, and I managed to get a distinction, uh, a master's of philosophy with distinction at Oxford is not, not the easiest thing, but anyway. Um, then from there went to Santa Barbara. I thought I would do the PhD in Santa Barbara. Um, and the, the professor, well, there were, there were a couple of people that were good there, like Vesna Wallace. Mm-hmm. She's remarkable. She's, she's great. She's one of the great Kalachakra scholars in the world. Yes, but we, she did, wasn't teaching us any Kalachakra, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> we were reading Jainism materials and stuff, um, which is a little boring by comparison. But, um, yeah, she's very, very good. Um, and, but then the, the, the professor there, who, who's a specialist in Tantra, um, I was disappointed with. I don't. I don't want to yeah. name name him, sure. but I was disappointed. I realized his his Sanskrit's not any better than mine. I need to be studying with someone who's better, you know. So um, yeah, I went. I went back to Berkeley, where a student of Sanderson's, who's, who who by then was a was an acclaimed scholar in his own right, Somdev Vasudeva, um, was was guest professor at Berkeley, and so I got to work with him some. He's absolutely brilliant. He's you know, ties for Sanderson's top student, which, you know, places him in a high echelon. Um, so then I finished the PhD at Berkeley, and, you know, I, I sort of I skipped over some years there because I traveled India and researched and, you know, you know how your PhD can drag on <laughs> for, for quite some time, and I didn't even know if I would finish it. Um, oh because I was getting into teaching in the yoga world. So were you doing research for your, your dissertation at this point as well? Yes, yes. So I had, when I finished all the coursework, you know, I went to India, and, and this was around when Obama was first elected, yeah. um, and, I, and I, in Nepal as well. Nepal and India, I was traveling, was researching, was just also just taking the opportunity to, to experience everything and see what sacred sites were still alive and, and powerful there and which weren't. Um, and, and, and so, and then, and I also got into, you know, in this time period before filing the dissertation, I got, I was getting into teaching in the yoga world and it was quite fulfilling. And I, I started to realize I don't actually need a professorship. I'd always planned on a professorship, but it's not, it's not the only choice. It used to be the only one. Well, you know what Ken Wilber says about it? He, hmm. says, he says it's the killing jar of authentic spirituality. Yeah. Teaching in the academy. That's somewhat true. I mean, you can, you can manage to keep your spiritual sentiments alive, but only with a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, grad school tries to, as Joseph Campbell put it, grad, grad school tries to flatten you out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, so were you practicing, obviously, during this entire time? Your, yes. your actual personal yogic practice was yes. always sublimating and tagging. Yes, it. yes. And I, and I went through a phase where it wasn't so strong. I was just so, you know, like the novelty of intellectual knowledge, you know, uh, like, like, uh, like Shweta Ketu and the Upanishads. And I, so I, you know, fell out of practice a little bit. And then 
when the novelty of the intellectual knowledge wore off, I realized, well, this is the intellectual part of this is really just a hobby. That's all it is, you know. And over time, I lost pride in intellectual knowledge to the point that when I finally filed the, the dissertation in 2014, I felt no sense of accomplishment at all. I was like, do, do, I, do I even want to finish this? Okay, no, an intuition inside said, no, just, just, just keep going, just finish this, even though there's maybe no reason. And I filed it, and I felt not, no, no accomplishment, but, but in a good way. <laughs> like, like, I just managed to get this done, you know, ju just after losing all sense of its significance. But it did, I mean, it, you know, it made my um, mind probably work a little bit more rigorously. And ever since then, it works more rigorously, I think. But, but it's not, it had no bearing, it wasn't really needed for my, for my teaching career, because that was, was and still is freelance since I decided not to do a professorship. And then it wasn't, of course, very significant at all for the spiritual life. Yeah. Doesn't it tie in a little bit, Harish, to what you were talking about at the very outset, that as elegant as it is, it's just really another refined story. Yeah. It's just a map, and no matter how elegant and subtle the map is, it never is the territory. Right, right. And you, 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 the more you explore the territory, I mean, you need a map, but the more you explore the territory and get to know it on its own terms, the more the maps seem inadequate. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so the last piece of this is that um, uh, when was it exactly? It would have been, yeah, before, definitely before I filed the dissertation. That's when, like, a whole nother spiritual awakening happened. Not dramatic, but very significant. Where I kind of turned a corner, where I was like, "Okay, I have the I have the academic knowledge, but it's not it's neither here nor there in the ultimate grand scheme of things." And I started to go deeper with practice, but this was a new kind of practice. It was it wasn't like the regimented yogi logging his yogi hours, you know, if I just log enough hours, I'll be enlightened. It wasn't that a, a kind of thing, you know, it was more actually being drawn to practice with no sense of should, with no sense of like, I'm trying to achieve something, but just a, a sort of deep curiosity to discover what's there to yeah. be discovered, you know, through, through practice. And yeah. I discovered that's a much more effective Motive. Well, it's interesting, Arush, because when people ask me, I, I've drunk the Buddhist Kool-Aid, it mm -hmm. speaks to me, I like that cuisine. But more and more when people ask me, are you Buddhist? I go, well, you know, sort of, kind of, but I'm mostly a curious. Yeah. I'm a curious. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. interested in, what, what, is, what is this? What is this all about? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and in terms of identity, I, yeah, I went from, you know, I identified with, with uh, you know, my teacher's particular movement called Siddha Yoga. I was a Siddha Yogi, and then I, then I identified more with Hinduism, and I was a Hindu, and then with Shaivism, and I was a Shaiva, and then with Tantra, and yeah. I was a Tantrika, and now none of it. All of it, none of it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You can't, yeah, it's, you don't need, after, I mean, you need it maybe for a time, but after time you don't need the identity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so one of the reasons, I, I want to share this with our listeners, one of the reasons I'm so terribly excited to introduce you all, listeners, to Harish's work. 
um, and this is what we're going to be tiptoeing into, he's, he's the author of two seminal texts. Um, in fact, they're so seminal that I don't want to water them down by talking about both of them. Mm. The first one is a really marvelous, especially for me, really illuminating, literally illuminating mm -hmm. text, Tantra Illuminated, mm -hmm. that I found to be a spectacular way for me to contextualize my own tradition of Tibetan Tantric Buddhism. Mm -hmm. You know, like where, where did my goods come from? Mm -hmm. And so I found that book masterful. But the one that just blew my socks off that I want to spend time with you talking about today, mm -hmm. of course, is, is your masterpiece, The Recognition Sutras. Mm -hmm. And for, for our listeners out there, this is a, an extraordinary text. It's in the family, and I'd love to talk to you about this a little bit, Harvish. It's in the family of what I've come to refer to as these kind of trans-religious masterpieces, like mm -hmm. in the spirit of Dzogchen or even um, the Kaduma tradition, the, the post-Kabbalistic Jewish mystical tradition, that are, that, are, that are teachings that are so profound that they transcend any cultural boundaries. Mm -hmm. And that's why when I read it, to me, it was just nodding my head all the time um, with a deep level of recognition of the confluence of this wisdom tradition with my own understanding of, of Dzogchen and Mahamudra. And what you do in such a masterful way, not only is your translation of epic proportions, is that you are also an extremely skilled cultural translator. Mm. And I think that is as important, if not more so, than, than kind of classic liturgical translation. Mm -hmm. Because we, we, we're not Indians, we're not Tibetans. Mm -hmm. We speak, I don't live in a world of chariots, and uh -huh. um, elephants. I live in a world of Apple and Amazon. Uh -huh. And so it's your ability, your kind of synthetic, syncretic mind uh -huh. to, to draw on psychology, even some quantum cosmology, uh -huh. and draw all these other kind of augmenting, supporting threads within your work that takes your unpacking of this incredible masterpiece and literally translating in cultural terms that I found to be just sublime. Um, and so there's so much to talk about here, but let's let's start for for some people who may not be that familiar with with Kashmir Shaivism. Um, why should we be bothered? Mm -hmm. What can Kashmir Shaivism teach the modern mind? Yeah, well, actually, <laughs> this is part of why I don't uh, use that 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 phrase that you just used, Kashmir Shaivism. I mean, the the phrase was coined by a Kashmiri uh, in 1914. So it's a modern phrase um, that doesn't have any traditional correspondent. So why why do people talk about Kashmir Shaivism? It's because the tradition is actually called Tantric Shaivism or Shaiva Tantra, right? Which obviously corresponds to parallel terms like Tantric Buddhism um, or in Sanskrit you say Bauda Tantra. But anyway, the the point is that Shaivism, Tantric Shaivism, was a pan-Indian tradition in its own time, right? Not only Pan-India, it was Pan-Asian. So it even made its way to Southeast Asia and Indonesia uh, in, in its... In its Borobudur. Yeah. Yes, yes, it, yes. Exactly. Borobudur is a very early, early Tantric Shaiva site. And also uh, uh, um, Angkor Wat. I've been there as well, yeah. exactly. They Which, both, yeah. I went, when the first time I went to both places, I was walking around going, OMG, even though there isn't one. Yeah. What is this doing down here? <laughs> yeah. Well, and what's fascinating about Angkor Wat is it was founded as a, as a tantric Shaiva kingdom first, and then later became a tantric Buddhist kingdom. Um, and it, anyway, so it's, it's, it was a pan-Indian and indeed pan-much-of-Asia tradition. So Kashmir, when we say Kashmir Shaivism, it makes it sound like a kind of parochial or, you know, it's just some weird thing from this little region. Now Kashmir, of course, 
is a very special region. Well, Magnus Baba. I mean, talk about the hot spot, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kashmir Valley had a strong connection to Swat Valley. I've been there as well. Right, which it is the fabled ancient kingdom of Udiana. That's exactly. Yeah, right. where yeah, Padmasambhava is from there, but also one of the main gurus of this Kashmiri Shaiva tradition, Gyananetra, uh, was also from or or was initiated in Udiana. So that is the number one sacred pilgrimage site for both Buddhism and and, and Shaivism. Of course, no, no more, because now it's controlled by the Taliban yeah. and so on. Um, but you know, I think you know, just a little side note. You know, Malala Yousafzai, yeah, yeah. what an extraordinary spirit. I, I, I want to believe that she has some of that spirit of the yeah. original Udiana. Drala, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, the the uh, the the. Way that the misunderstanding came about um, was that the most famous and most brilliant authors of the tantric tradition of Shaivism came from Kashmir or lived in the Kashmir Valley. You know, so their writings survived even when uh, you know most of the tradition you know didn't didn't survive Muslim conquest or or colonialism. It did in various little pockets, in various little ways. But what had been a very a vast, coherent, um, you know, tradition and edifice of of practice and scholarship, you know, was mostly decimated by the Muslim conquests and then colonialism. So anyway, the the so the writings people knew who read Sanskrit, you know, which is obviously a small enough number, but people who people knew that the, there were these amazing writings from. Kashmir Valley. So it became, the, that body of material became known as Kashmir Shaivism. But they were really commenting on this pan-Indian uh, tantric spiritual tradition, which was, um, you know, paralleled uh, over in, in Tibet and Nepal. And, and, you know, so um, it's important to see it not as its own little siloed yeah. thing, but in that, in that larger context. Yeah. So then your actual question is, you know, what does it what does it have to, to to teach us? I mean, I think it's fair to say that even though modern humans might imagine that we're as advanced as humans have ever been in any in any field, it's it's not true. We're not as advanced as we've ever been in the in the empirical study of consciousness. And, and these were folks who, I mean, it used to be true in many parts of India, and it was true in Kashmir, that they had, as it were, government research grants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the king, or the court, authorized stipends for people to practice and study full-time who were not monastics, right? So this is the thing. Unlike Tibet, which had a monasticized system, which then created institutional norms that were sometimes, uh, you know, problematic. This, these were um, householder, you know, uh, 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 scholars and yogis and and practitioners, yeah. and um, so yeah, so they would get these uh, stipends, <laughs> and and so yeah, it was it was a government funded meditation research for many many centuries actually, and because of that, partially because of that, you know, they're that people made extraordinary breakthroughs in understanding consciousness. And, um, you know, one example would be in the, in the Krama lineage of, of Shaivism, which flourished in Kashmir, and again, based in uh, uh, Udiana, they 
made minute analyses of the nature of cognition, not just consciousness generally, because any mystic can talk about consciousness in a vague general way, but they made minute analyses of how consciousness manifested its content moment to moment. Mm. You know, so the Krama lineage is so-called because they analyzed the Krama or the sequences, the, the phases of consciousness in each and every cognitive event. So somewhat akin to perhaps to the Abhidharma tradition or more like Pramana in the Buddhist, do you have a sense? Um, is there a confluence between either of those that you would correlate? Uh, well, between those two, a bit closer to, to Abhidharma, but, but it's, you know, <laughs> kind of what makes it hard to describe is this this apparent scholasticism was in this tradition intimately married to radical rites of transgression of consciousness expansion so these were the same guy the same guys who did these these you know almost um these analyses that got into the minutia of of the nature of consciousness yeah, were also the atomistic nature of mind. Yeah, well, they were also the same people though that were doing the most transgressive rituals, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, you know, experimenting with with different kind of methods for for consciousness expansion through bodily discipline, through through dream yoga, um, through you know, occasionally psychoactive plants like datura, mm -hmm. uh, inhaling datura smoke, through. Um, uh, uh, sexual rituals that, when combined with highly advanced forms of meditation, produce these you know sublime exactly. states. Um, but ultimately, what's interesting is that because people are all fascinated by these peak experiences, right. sublime states, altered states of consciousness. But what these guys ended up deciding, having experienced all that in, in, in the Krama lineage, was that the nature of consciousness it can be discovered in, in any experience whatsoever. And this is in the, the book, The Recognition Sutras. This teaching, it's first introduced as one of the alternate translations of, or, or alternate readings of the first sutra. That Kshemaraja, the author, says, you know, the sutra is also telling us that the nature of consciousness, our, our, our own deepest, truest, unborn, undying, infinite nature, can be discovered through any experience whatsoever. It doesn't take peak experience. Hence the term recognition. Yeah, yeah, it can be recognized. Yeah. And that peak experiences in that sense can be a distraction. It, absolutely. Right. But absolutely. also, we also, I would say, need peak experiences in order to recognize, oh, okay, so, so my essence nature, or consciousness itself, is that which is actually the same in the peak experience and, right. in, and in the bored experience, you know. Exactly right. But, of course, if you really discover the nature of consciousness, you can't be bored anymore. <laughs> That's not really possible. Well, first of all, there's no you to be bored, right? Yes. yes. And, you, and so, it's just, and, and consciousness itself is fascinating in whatever form it's arising. Yeah, Leela, it's always, it's always a play. It's always a dance. Yeah. It's a dynamic energy. Yeah. yeah. And so what's interesting here, Harish, is that, you know, I find it very interesting when people talk about, even in this modern age, psychotropic agents and, and ways to alter consciousness. I mean, I think you might agree with me that fundamentally, this is the altered state. Mm. In other words, seeing the world dualistically, mm. seeing it through a samsaric lens, that's the altered state. Mm -hmm. That's what we call, in, in the Tibetan tradition, the term for temporary experience, and it's a hugely important term, it's called nyam. And nyam, by definition, always has a beginning and an end. It's like morning mist. Mm -hmm. And with proper tools and, and practices of maturation, it 
fundamentally um, transforms into tokpa, which is, in fact, stability. Mm -hmm. And so, on a really um, deep level, uh, just because this particular nyam has been going on for so long, we don't see that this is the nyam. Mm -hmm. This is the altered state. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, then, what happens is this, and this is why, I, when I, I read the title, when I think about um, what the Tibetans refer to as the nintig, heart essence teachings, if I had to summarize like one word, the entire spiritual path, mm -hmm. and also, by the way, parenthetically, best preparation for death, mm -hmm. relaxation mm -hmm. or recognition. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, what happens is through the proper view that you put forth in, the, in this text, realizing mm -hmm. that fundamentally this is in fact the altered state, mm -hmm. then either through recognition or relaxation, be interesting to parse out what the mm -hmm. subtle differences may be there, it's always already present. And it's yes. like you say repeatedly in this text, it's basically 400 pages of saying the same thing. Yes. Which is brilliant. <laughs> yes. What you're looking for is hiding in plain sight. Yes. And we yes. just simply have to recognize. We simply have yeah. to open, relax, and it's always already there. Yeah. And then, so stop looking. It's like you say over and over. It's like, you know, my teacher, Vidadara Trungpa Rinpoche, at the highest level, striving is the only obstacle. Yes. Just let it go. Yes. And like you say, you know, the, the seeking denotes the absence of what you see. Yeah. Even, even the path itself, therefore, in a very real way, sets, even the notion of path sets us in the wrong direction. In a yeah. Way. Yeah. Uh, well. Yeah. Except for at the beginning, I think it's it's good to have a notion of path. It's to get the per, to get a practitioner oriented. But oftentimes people hold on to that notion far past its expiration date. You know. So yeah, I want to comment on, on some of the things you said. Um, relaxation and recognition. I think you need both, because I would say the key is that yeah, people are striving to become enlightened or, or recognize their essence nature or, or to, you know, achieve something, right? But the irony is that it's through relaxing so deeply. And, and the problem is in our culture, we now associate relaxing with, you know, glass of wine, Netflix, and dog, which is great, by the way, I'm not knocking it, you know, <laughs> partner or pet and, 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 and alcohol and movies, that's relaxation. And it can be a kind of relaxation, but it's nowhere near, as you know. There's nowhere near this kind of deep psychic and physical relaxation where what happens is, if, if, you're, if you're lucky, if you relax enough, you sort of slip out of your self-images. So I use the image, like, you know, the, the metaphorical image of like Houdini, you know, he would get, he would escape his being tied up by relaxing so completely, yeah, you know, he would tense when he got tied up, and then he would relax so completely he could just slip out of his bonds. And, and it's relaxing out of our, our need to be right, our self-images, our, you know, opinions and narratives and stories, and, but all of that, but most importantly, the self-images. Yeah. And then recognition can happen easily, because yeah. there you um, just, wait a second, just being. Just being itself is, is what's being recognized, and it's not personal.